0: We had our design phase, our build phase, our testing phase, and that brought us to the end of last year. And while we continue to test a ton of ideas and really validate our assumptions in a variety of areas, we are very excited to be sharing and introducing the Mesa with you all.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth.
2: Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, the producer and host of the show. I hope this finds you all well and enjoying your spring. I know it's been a minute since we've been in your headphones. So the last episode we released was with Ford Foundation, and that was technically supposed to be our last episode of Season 3, but we're actually coming back to you now with a special bonus episode. If you follow us at IG on social, you'll know that we recently launched a new product called The Mesa. It's a B2B technology platform for social impact communities, and we hosted a launch event in March to bring it out into the world. The event featured a conversation with our partners at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and several incredible philanthropists. It was chaired by The Mesa's managing director, Lauren Gross, and recorded so that it could be turned into this podcast episode. Lauren will give you all the details of what the MESA is and proper introductions to all the panelists once the recording begins. So I'm not going to go into that now. That's it from me, except to say, of course, a huge thank you and shout out to our official season three sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation and our media partner, Alliance Magazine. You can check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, for lots of really interesting content and advice on philanthropy. And of course, get a 25% discount at checkout if you use the code WHATDONORSWANT for an Alliance subscription. That's What donors Want, all one word. Okay, I think just for the interest of time, I'll dive straight into the recording. Again, this was a recording of the event chaired by Lauren Gross, and we really hope you enjoy it. I'll see you at the end.
0: Bye-bye. We just want to welcome you and say we're, we're so excited to have you here today. We will be sharing our learnings from our design and pilot period from the MESA, and we're also going to be hearing from a fantastic panel of trailblazing philanthropists and community leaders who I am so grateful are able to join us today. I'm Lauren Gross, and I'm the managing director of the MESA at IG. I was going to say I'm calling in from a dreary, dreary London day, but somehow, like London days do, a bit of sun has decided to shine through. So I'm assuming that's some good luck for the event today. And I'm hoping wherever you're calling in from, you're also really looking forward to this conversation. Right before we jump in, just a few terms, I want to make sure everyone's on the same page as we explore a little bit into the pilot period and the MESA, and then we bring in our panelists. So the three terms I wanted to share, we've got impacts community, which is a community, whether that's offline or online, that's specifically focused on social impact and all of the activities that are done within it, members who are in the community, and the beliefs of the group are focused on doing good. So that is really the impact communities that we're referring to. Then we have intermediaries, also sometimes referred to as hosts. And these are actually the organizations or groups that are working directly with members, which I'll mention in a second, and they run impact communities. And these are, in some cases, wealth advisory firms or banks, Donor networks or collectives, foundations, and nonprofits, and then we have our users or members. And you'll see uh, this is uh, really brings the other two definitions together. But it's individuals who are part of those impact communities that are hosted by the intermediaries. And these include our high net worth individuals, our donors, our change makers, or in some cases, our nonprofit leaders. So back in 17, we really started all of this work off with just one question. In the last several decades, technology has changed pretty much everything we do. Our basic functional tasks are all now, we could utilize technology to do them. Yet there's one area that continues to remain so analog, and this is the major gift philanthropy space. At IG, we wanted to understand why is this the case and what can we do to really help create a technological solution to to advance this. And so we were focused on finding innovative ways of unlocking investment from the high net worth individual market. So alongside our technology partners Lightful and with the support of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we began a really thorough human-centered design, build, and testing process to create a new experience for philanthropists. Over the last year, we have piloted that platform with four hosts, so Generation Pledge, Standard Charter, Private Bank, IG's friends and clients, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Goalkeepers community. And they've helped us understand and test hypotheses that we were thinking through, helped us validate, of course, the learnings that we were trying to identify, and then constant iteration, as with all technology, on our approach, refining that and constantly uh, continuing to iterate. And through all of that work, so that was quite an extensive process, we then landed on a, a really robust set of learnings that continue to inform us every day as we, we think through what the future of the MESA is and, and what it can be. Um, and we continue to bring the voices of others into that conversation and just sharing a few of the many, many learnings. And I encourage you to check out our global report that just launched last week. Emma will actually share that in the chat box for anyone who's interested in reading that. So the IG team gleaned significant and sometimes really surprising insights into the process. As I said, we're sharing seven here, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Definitely check out the report to, to learn more. So, A few of those are that first and foremost, and I think this will will be the, the thing that comes up most in this conversation, is the individuals that we interviewed during this process expressed a deep loneliness and isolation on their impact journeys and a real thirst for knowledge that they weren't finding while they were trying to really explore who they were in this journey and how they wanted to have an impact We also discovered that philanthropists, especially next-gens or those who are newer to giving, had a strong desire to connect with each other and form action-oriented impact communities in real and authentic ways. And how they could do that using technology was really interesting because they were more willing to engage in it and utilizing technology for these purposes. At the same time, we learned in this process that these individuals are incredibly busy. They have a lot going on. They want to make sure their time is is valued. And because of that, any community won't work. It needs to be one that offers really high-quality content and curated content that will be tailored specifically to their needs. So In addition to a lot of the things we were understanding about community, we also asked these individuals, so this includes philanthropists, it includes inheritors, it includes change makers, what they need more of from the intermediaries that they engage with, especially, I'd say, advisors. And what we learned is in order for these intermediaries to have a real seat at the table with the next generation of of clients they need to change they're not serving the needs of these individuals as much as they may have previously been doing so high net worth individuals and in certain cases donors want holistic support they want to be seen as a human and this is of course true in fundraising as well for those fundraisers out there which includes thinking about their philanthropy and their social impact in addition to potentially their wealth management portfolio or impact investing. Another key learning was that we discovered there was a strong feeling from all of our interview subjects that any digital philanthropic solution should complement or enhance, not replace their overall journey. So human connection here, this is another one, human connection still needs to be core to any community. So connecting that offline and online could sometimes be quite challenging, but finding the right ways to do that, and and they exist, is absolutely critical. Can't have a presentation event these days without talking about COVID for at least a minute. So it is worth noting that a lot of this research was done before the COVID-19 pandemic. And in terms of what we've we've seen over the last year or so, community and especially online community has only gotten stronger, and the willingness to engage digitally has only become more cross-generational. So we really see this movement towards using trusted private communities as being a, a really core element, not just to our newer givers or our next gen givers, but also cross-generationally, as I as I just mentioned. Finally, and and this is really important to mention, building a community, whether that's online or offline, can be incredibly challenging. You have to build trust and engagement within a community. and, And those are some of just the hardest parts of building one online. However, no matter what, you absolutely must put time and effort into building a community so that there's room for experimentation and for active listening and for community management. So we often have spoken with communities or have engaged in conversations and people are are so ready to bring a community online or ready to engage a community, but they really forget that there's a lot of steps in doing so. So it's critical that you have the resource to be able to do so in in a way that really can build meaningful community. As I said, this is just a few of our key learnings. We're throwing them out there and I know it's a lot to absorb. So please, we welcome you to check out the report and learn more. All right, so jumping into the content about uh, a little bit more about the MESA. We had our design phase, our build phase, our testing phase, and that brought us to the end of last year. And while we continue to test a ton of ideas and really validate our assumptions in a variety of areas, we are very excited to be sharing and introducing the MESA with you all. So the Mesa is a platform, really the only platform out there designed to help your philanthropic community connect, grow and give better. The Mesa is based on Salesforce. And the idea is that it's a rebrandable, secure platform for your community to engage while also having a CRM built in. So it's both a CRM and a community together as one. Our research has taught us, as I mentioned previously, that wealth holders are disconnected, they feel lonely, and they're overwhelmed in their philanthropic journeys. They struggle to find trusted information, guidance, and therefore they're they're really slower and less able to give impactfully. The Mace's aim is to help other communities by providing a tool to increase philanthropic engagement. And this could be through support of peer relationships and collaboration, access to knowledge, tools and quality trusted advice. And while the MESA really serves as a vessel to enable others to spearhead thriving, money moving communities, we hope to be a partner in this work. And this is really core to who we are. We're preaching collaboration and community and we want to build that relationship within the social impact space. So just a little bit more about about the MESA and how those learnings have become who the MESA is today. We began a lot of this work around understanding high net worth individuals, those philanthropists, those inheritors, and in some cases, change makers. But what we really learned is People are looking for the MESA and it meets different needs beyond just supporting those who have a significant worth, high net worth. And so we understood that whether a community, an impact community, is a donor collective, a bank, Or maybe a nonprofit or a community foundation. It's really a tool that can build and strengthen your online community, no matter what specific needs you have. And for instance, one of the biggest learnings was nonprofits expressed interest in galvanizing their donors, maybe at the major gift level to support their cause in in a closed space. And so that was one of the, the key things we learned in addition to donor collectives and membership bodies, other groups can really benefit from having their impact community online. And before we jump into the panel, the the final slide of this section. So as I mentioned earlier, resourcing can be incredibly challenging. Making sure you have the right strategy in place to build an offline or online community is incredibly important. And so I just wanted to share here, while the MESA sits in the middle, there are a significant amount of other specialty services and resources that our in-house community specialists and philanthropy advisors can really offer to support you on that journey as you either build your impact community or to strengthen an existing one. All right, thank you for listening and hearing a little bit more about the MESA pilot program and the MESA learnings in the pilot program and then where we are today and uh, a little bit more about who the MESA is as we've just launched in the last month. And now I'm really excited to share our panelists for the rest of today's discussion. So I'd like to invite these incredible individuals to join me today. These are trailblazing, and I truly mean it, trailblazing philanthropists who are also, in addition, creating incredible communities. I was going to write all of their titles here, but they just have so many titles. They're founding and co-founding more communities than, than I could possibly begin to describe. And I won't because I'll let them describe it a little bit further. But before they jump in, I do want to introduce my incredibly fantastic, a bunch of other superlative co-moderator, Emily Inslee, who is the program officer on the philanthropic partnerships team at the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation. Just a little bit about Emily. She joined the foundation back in 2013, and she actually focuses on working with philanthropists and nonprofits to learn, co-fund, and collaborate with the foundation on a variety of opportunities. She also manages the foundation's 501c3 public charity Gates Philanthropy Partners. And she has been an incredible cheerleader and partner in the work around the Mesa. And we are eternally grateful for her support. And now I would love to kick it off with letting our three panelists sharing a little bit about yourself. How about your name, where you're located, where you're normally located, and maybe a a little bit about the organizations that you've run or or communities that you're building or, or you've built in the past. Michelle, you're first on my screen. Do you want to kick us off? Great,
3: thanks so much, Lauren. Um, I'm really excited to be here today with this fantastic group of panelists and with Emily and Lauren. I'm Michelle Yu. I'm originally from Vancouver, but I also spent 10 years in Hong Kong where I have roots and I still maintain a family office there. I now live in London. I am co-founder and chair of the Milby Foundation co-founder of the BEAM Network, a trustee of the Robert HNO Family Foundation, and chair of the Freedom Fund's Council of Advocates. And essentially, I work with women and girls at opposite ends of the economic spectrum. At the Milby Foundation, I work on the challenges facing adolescent girls, primarily those in Southeast Asia that are vulnerable to trafficking, violence, and exploitation, And at the BEAM Network, I work with ultra-high net worth women to provide financial education and peer support so that women can better align their investments with their values, driving more money towards more sustainable and inclusive economic opportunities. And while these strands of work may seem completely disconnected, they're unified in the belief that if you give women and girls the ability to fully utilize the resources that they have, they can be powerful agents of change.
0: Fantastic. Peter, do you want to share a little bit about yourself?
4: Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, and thanks. Thanks for, for showing up today. I am um, really excited to be here. Really you know, important topic and, and have been passionate about this for a number of years now. So my name is Peter Williamson. I am from New Hampshire originally, currently live in just north of the Washington, D.C. metro area and just very passionate about bringing philanthropy into the next-gen space, making it more accessible for people. I was a professional golfer for a number of years and used that experience to learn about how games and play can build trust and relationships in communities. And so I focus right now, kind of in a hyper-local sense, on a bunch of initiatives in the DC area that I'll I'll probably touch on as we go through this this session, but really focused on helping the nonprofit community here connect to donors, but also other stakeholders and, and make sure that social impact can be fun as much as it is meaningful.
0: Amazing. Definitely feel free to whip out some of what you're, you're speaking to during this session. And last but not least, Christina, can you share a little bit about yourself?
5: Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I'm Christina Johansson. I'm Swedish and British, currently in Stockholm, but normally live in London and hope to be back there soon. Um, And I'm the director of the Sulberga Foundation, which is my family's philanthropic foundation that works on supporting transformative climate justice movements. And I'm also the co-founder of Resource Justice, a community of young people with wealth and class privilege who are committed to social justice. Thanks for having me
0: here. Great. And I'd love to pass it off to Emily now for our first question.
6: Thanks so much, Lauren. And thank you all for being here. So I'd love to start by asking if you could each share a little bit about your philanthropic journeys with specific focus on when you first started to give or were thinking about it. At that time, was there anything you wish you knew now back when you were starting? Feel free to jump in anyone. I won't call on on you. Just jump on in.
4: I'll start. So as I mentioned, working on a bunch of different initiatives. So I come from a Sixth Generation Family Foundation that's based out of Dayton, Ohio, I'm a fifth gen, and I think I got started in the family foundation meetings pretty early. My parents were both educators and really thought that getting in and exploring something, even if I didn't understand it, was going to be really helpful. And so around 10, 11, 12, 13, I was attending some of our family meetings, understood pretty much nothing about what was happening, but saw my family and various different people in the room really passionate about certain issue areas. And I I really took that to heart and thinking about, all right, whatever I go off and do in my life, I want to make sure that I'm thinking about how I can give back and use that to leverage my wealth and privilege. And so I started around then. And as I kind of got through with my college years, I was thinking about ways that I could give back. And I studied architecture and design in school. So I've been really interested in building spaces that challenge people to think differently. And so that kind of started me down this game design track. It's uh, not your residential commercial side of things, but it's a, it's a way to, to build spaces. And I think that's really key to building relationships and, and, and having a shared communal experience with people. I was also a really good golfer, so I turned professional after my college career. This is a very non-linear track of how you get to this this place where I am in D.C., but I used that as a way to channel some of my talents into meeting new people and figuring out kind of the pain points of different communities. And so when I got to D.C., I was really looking to be more in a hyper-local approach and thinking, how can I serve the community that I'm in now? And so I reached out to a bunch of youth networks, and different philanthropic kind of ecosystem players. So we've got a great organization here in the DC area that vets nonprofits, kind of small, medium-sized nonprofits to help donors give with peace of mind. And so just making those connections, I was able to explore and figure out how I could help at a more creative capacity. So I run a, a game design firm that does a lot of direct service work for nonprofits and have used that to kind of broaden my base here in DC.
6: So interesting. Christina, Michelle, would either of you like to jump in?
3: Yeah. Shall I go next, Christina? So yeah, that's really interesting, Peter. My sort of journey is slightly different, but I guess it it begins with my parents. Um, They weren't educators, but my mother was a social worker and my father is a doctor. So I think that had a lot to do with my values growing up. There was always a culture of helping others, but it wasn't until my husband that the time and my extended family formed our family foundation, I think it was in 2005, that I thought about giving in a more organized way. The foundation initially started out promoting Chinese arts and culture, and then we later added Buddhism as a thematic area. But there were challenges to that, primarily because of the goals of the foundation were not strongly aligned with my own interests. I wanted to do something that had a more direct impact on underserved communities. So then I established the Milby Foundation to explore my interests in human rights and gender justice. And we've been funding various organizations, mainly through capacity building initiatives and making inroads through that. But I think the thing that changed again is when I got divorced four years ago, that necessitated some internal reflection and I really re-examined the resources I have at my disposal to create social impact. And I thought more deeply about the legacy that I wanted to leave my children. And my children are, will actually be, well, their fifth generation wealth. And I realized that if I didn't maximize my own economic agency, I wasn't using one of my biggest levers, my financial investments to effectively create change. And I also realized that I wasn't alone in this thinking. of women with $5 million or more of investable assets want their investments to have a positive social return, not just a financial one. So that's why I co-founded The Beam Network, so that we can educate women about finances and investing. We believe that when women have greater capacity to decide how and what to invest in, it will support financial systems and economic opportunities that are more inclusive and sustainable. Women want to demystify all that investing jargon. (laughs) They want to arm themselves with information and engage with the financial industry on more equal footing, which means we can increase the power of women's wealth, which is growing globally to the tune of $5 trillion each year to drive change in the way businesses, financial systems, and markets operate. So I guess looking back, I wish I had access to education around effective philanthropic models and case studies perhaps of foundations and organizations that had had successes in their respective interest areas. I think that possibly being introduced to other philanthropists or networks definitely would have accelerated my own learning as well. But I guess the reality at the time was I didn't know anyone in that space and and our advisors either didn't see the value of those networks or they didn't have access to those networks either. Instead, I was essentially just told to start giving. And it might be also more of an Asian standpoint, but there was and still is a resistance from some of the other family members to reach out beyond a selected group of of trusted advisors. The family's always been really private and low key. So maybe that doesn't come naturally. But I think that finding a group or groups that have a culture of trust, of shared learning, humility, promoting a growth mindset has really been important for me personally in keeping up to date with best practices in philanthropy and using the capital that I have, actually that we all have, which is not only financial capital, but also our social and human capital for the benefit of the greater good. So yeah, I guess connections, education, peer support are are things I wish I had.
6: Michelle, thank you for sharing that. That was so, so inspiring. Christina, would you like to round us?
5: Yeah, Michelle, I wish I had all those things too. I completely resonate with what you were sharing at the end there. And yeah, I'm so excited that The beam is out there doing that for so many people. So my story coming to philanthropy is, well, I like many young people at university, I was really politicized around social justice issues and became like deeply passionate about activism and climate justice and racial justice. But I very much felt deep shame around my class background and hiding the kind of access to wealth I had and the shame because I learned that the this like very contradictory thing, that the very system that We were kind of calling out and trying to change was a system that I had personally benefited from. And, you know, business as usual has gotten us to where we are today. And, you know, it's deeply unjust society. And at the same time, we're at the beginning of this intergenerational, the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth in history of a number that I cannot comprehend, 30 trillion dollars, potentially more in assets being passed to a small number of people. And my sisters and I were reflecting on this as we were receiving our inheritance and that we had this like moral responsibility to do something like I think many other inheritors feel like business as usual can't continue like this. It's completely unsustainable. And we didn't want to be part of something that was harmful, but instead wanted to try to figure out how do we leverage this privilege, this incredible privilege that we've been given for social justice. And through the support of a community in the U.S. called Resource Generation that I'll share a little bit about later, I saw other young people taking action and organizing their families to move resources to social movements. And so I worked with my family to set up our philanthropic foundation in the U.K. three years ago, the Silberga Foundation, and... It has been a really big journey trying to figure out how to navigate being this person like doing this work and trying to be as aligned with my values as possible in philanthropy. And I'm still on that journey. And I think it, like there's so many things that I, I wish I had learned, but that's part of the journey is like I'm always learning them. but i I did really quickly find out that you know tr- traditional philanthropy hasn't isn't automatically synonymous with social justice or even the social change that the kinds of community groups I was part of were fighting for. And then in many ways, philanthropy has actually, you know, it's been reproducing and upholding some of the same inequalities that we were interested in challenging. And so I think I've entered philanthropy at a time where there's a lot of grappling internally around what needs to be done to tackle the system at its root from all, all sides. And really challenge the ways that like wealthy philanthropists have actually benefited from that system and how do we grapple with that? and what are the multiple ways we need to address that from investments, the way that's managed, the ways decisions are made, who's making these decisions, power and accountability? The list goes on, but I will stop there and maybe we'll get we'll get more into it later. <laughs>
0: Thank you all so much. And it's always so interesting to hear about the different journeys, philanthropic journeys that individuals take and where they're on it. And when they decide to take a step backwards to take three steps forward in a new direction. And we, we've we learned a lot about that. We've, we've had dozens, I mean, dozens of conversations with philanthropists and intermediaries And it's one of the biggest reasons why we're so glad to have the three of you here today so others can also hear the variety of perspectives and and journeys that have been taken. So, Michelle, I would love to pose this next question for you. you touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you might be able to elaborate. So, as I was just saying, one of our, our biggest learnings from the research is the challenge that so many face in finding those like-minded peers or, or peers that are maybe not exactly from the same background, but are willing to engage in, in a constructive dialogue. And we're wondering if you've had similar experiences to this and how do you find others who can help answer your questions or have been able to help answer your questions in the past and who have similar interests to yourself?
3: Yeah, thanks Lauren. I guess, you know, there's no set formula, but I guess what I'll go through is the way or the communities that I'm part of and how I found them. And that maybe would give some people some insight. I'm lucky now that I'm part of a few groups who I really depend on for support in my particular interest areas. And they all came to me at different stages in my life. And I can think of three groups in particular, and I think... They're all attending today, actually, so um, funny enough. So the three groups are the Philanthropy Workshop, the Freedom Fund, specifically their Council of Advocates, and the BEAM Network. So the first is the Philanthropy Workshop, which provides strategic philanthropic education and connects philanthropists from around the world. So after I co-founded the Milby Foundation, I realized that I didn't have any roadmap for effective giving and I was hungry for some sort of education on this. So funny enough, I happened to be talking to a high school friend of mine in Vancouver, even though I was living in London, and she mentioned that she was coming to London to take a course in philanthropy. So that's how I heard about TPW. And through TPW, I initially connected with um, people in person on a geographical level. We have a small London group that meets regularly. But since COVID, virtual gatherings have become normalized. So there are now international interest groups led by members that meet virtually and are focused on particular issue areas, such as climate, health, or women and girls. I guess the second group that's been meaningful to me is the Freedom Funds. And I actually chair their Council of Advocates. And the Freedom Fund is a leader in the anti-slavery movement. And I came across them when I was doing an online search into organizations (laughs) that were working with adolescent girls in Southeast Asia. And there were very few, and they have an office in in London, so I cold called them, wanted to find out more, and I built up relationship and started funding their, their work. The Council of Advocates meets virtually to support the Freedom Fund's work and learn more about the complexities of human trafficking. And we have members in the US, UK, and Canada And so that group is united because we have a very specific shared interest. But I think by far the most powerful connections that I'm making are through my new enterprise, The Beam Network. And I think the intensity of these connections come about because this network came directly from my own personal experience after my divorce. And when you were giving your initial presentation, Lauren, about next gen, a lot of it resonated because after my divorce, I felt that I needed to be more proactive in managing my wealth and my co-founders both inherited wealth at a relatively young age and they felt the same way when they came into their wealth. So while on one hand, we all felt incredibly fortunate, I also felt incredibly vulnerable because one, I didn't have enough knowledge to make informed investment decisions. And two, I felt alone which is one of the things that you touched on. And that wasn't just because of my divorce, but more because not many people I knew socially were in the same position. Women don't talk about money. And as a wealth owner, people expect you to know this stuff, but where would I have learned about it? And to add to this, the finance industry itself isn't particularly helpful because the industry doesn't address women's needs. It's telling that 62% of wealth management professionals globally believe that the industry doesn't cater well to the needs of female clients. And a whopping 90% of wealth holders feel that advisors should have further training to help women (laughs) achieve their goals and ensure they have an optimal client experience. So what we did is we created something that meets the specific needs of women like us and strives to meet the finance industry halfway. So we do four things. We provide financial education for female wealth holders in an approachable pitch free and supportive format. So we can enable women to have stronger alignment between their financial decisions and their values to what Christina was talking about. I mean, values are so important for for this generation. Number two, we ensure women learn together in small groups and in a safe space so that we can bond with like minded peers while laying the foundation to collectively advocate for more sustainable and impactful investment opportunities. Number three, we work with the finance industry so firms can better understand what women want. We can advocate for more female representation in the industry and just help shift the ecosystem to better serve people and planet. And the fourth thing that we do is we intend to invest in financial literacy for women and youth across disadvantaged socioeconomic groups so that these populations can become financially resilient. So essentially we came up with a solution which makes learning about finance feel right for people like us. It's engaging, it's relevant, it's presented in bite-sized pieces so it's not overwhelming. And I find that we're really resonating with those that want to do more with their investments to have that positive social impact. And funny enough, we did the entire thing during lockdown. (laughs) My two co-founders and I all live in London. And we started thinking about the concept at a lunch a year ago, which celebrated International Women's Day last March. Lockdown soon followed. So we made a point of meeting weekly via Zoom to continue our discussions. And then we built our entire model despite only being able to meet in person three or four times over the course of the year. The professor that teaches our foundations course normally lectures at the Oxford Said School of Business, but she's currently in, with her family in Cape Town. We've never met her. Our teaching assistant is in South Africa as well. The consultants that we use to help design and build our website are in the UK, Spain, and uh, Germany. And again, we haven't met any of them in person. And our foundations class is conducted entirely online, and we attracted women from across Europe. We also had some interest (laughs) from the U.S., but the timing just didn't work out, so we're going to do our next course at a time for works a time that works for folks in North America. So ultimately, going digital for us has been really positive. But I also want to point out that I think we will talk about this a bit more later. But we also invest a lot of energy into creating that safe space that we talked about, so that women are comfortable sharing their experiences with money because it's not something that you would normally discuss.
6: Michelle, thank you for that. I was just reflecting as you were speaking about community and the way that, you know, we as humans build community and how different it's looked in the last year, especially, I mean, even for the most mundane of things, how we get our energy, how I get my energy looks so much different now than it did a year ago today with our increasingly digital world due to the impacts of COVID. And so I'd love to move on to another question that digs a little deeper into community because each of you has built one or more, (laughs) many impact focused communities just prior to or during COVID, which in and of itself is just incredible. But Christina, I'd like to turn to you and you mentioned a bit about your work with Resource Justice earlier. And I'd love if you could share a little bit more about your work with, at Resource Justice and the, more about the community and more specifically why you built it. And perhaps you could also go into what that community has looked like in COVID times when we've been a little bit more digital in last year.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I'm always blown away by uh, oftentimes when I reflect on this year and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so close to this person. And then I realize I've never met them in person. How, how weird is that? That I like have seriously close relationships now that we've never physically been in the same place, but it's very surprising, but lots of learnings this year on how you can really build community online. But yeah, I would love to share more about resource justice and why we built it. So as I mentioned earlier is that, you know, we're seeing this intergenerational, this huge intergenerational shift of wealth. And resource justice exists to take on the task of organizing people who are inheriting this wealth to fight for social justice and to move resources to social movements. And so we educate and organize young people with wealth to fight for social justice about the roots of inequality and encourage each other to take bold action to move resources in solidarity with movements. And we were inspired by the amazing resource generation in the US, who has inspired many new resource generation sister organizations to to exist in other places. Canada, there's one. And then we've set up in the UK over the last two years. And recently we're talking about a pan-European resource justice. We've got a group in Germany, a group in France and Sweden. So it's growing and we're finding there is a real need for this. So for me, my experience of why we wanted to set it up, when I came back to the UK to set up my family's foundation, I met other young people in a similar situation to me who were looking for a community of like-minded young people with shared values and values, I guess, is really like the keyword that, here in the UK and we didn't feel like there was one. And so, yeah, we we set up about two years ago and have been building our community mostly online in the last year since we launched our uh, online and our website and and have been building this community of online relationships where we meet. We have lots of different working groups and then we do this six-month program with all of our members, anyone over the course of six months going really deep into grappling with questions of power and privilege. And for me, as I mentioned, when like prior to finding this community, I felt that I was hiding my class privilege and it was actually preventing me from really being like honest in my relationships and having authentic relationships in the communities that I was inv- involved in, especially the activists and social justice communities. And it allowed me to, by, by being upfront and more honest about my identity, I, I could bring my full self and I could actually find out what more I could offer to movements for social justice. And so we've been trying to build this community of young people. And like one of the things that feels really important to us is to have really hard and tricky conversations about recognizing the kinds of inequitable systems that exist that have allowed for wealth accumulation at the expense of people and planet. And talking about that and talking about how our, our own families and our own money stories and our own um yeah, how we intersect in these systems and what we can do to organize our communities um, to show up and do more for social justice and to change these systems. We encourage all of our members to to share numbers and share emotional and like share stories and show up fully because we think that the, the kind of secrecy around numbers and the taboo around money and numbers is actually what allows our unequal class structures to thrive. And by creating a trusting community where we can, really go into the story, like our, our stories of our families' histories and how wealth has been accumulated and how that intersects with systems of injustice around racial injustice and gender and class injustice and push and challenge one another to leverage our, our privilege and interrogate those relationships to wealth and power and what it really means to be in solidarity with social movements. Yeah. And I think like it's incredibly liberating to be in a community that's pushing one another and like I find, I review like if I'm, in a, if, if I'm really uncomfortable, then I'm in the right space because I, I really feel like it's so crucial to be challenging ourselves and really like getting uncomfortable if we want to really, especially as a person with privilege to show up and, and change systems. So that's where, we're, yeah, that's what we're, we've been doing. And it's been surprisingly like successful online to, to build this community. And we're finding more and more people signing up every
0: day to want to go on this journey with us. Thank you so much for sharing, Christina. And I mean, again, going back to the research we did and how we decided to build out the MESA, so much of both what Christina and Michelle, you've mentioned, needing trusted private spaces, the Facebooks and the WhatsApps of the world, we're inevitably starting to move away from them just due to the nature of data privacy, having a place where you could see content and and share in vulnerable spaces. All of what you're saying is really, that was the impetus behind the MESA. And as communities, these impact communities do need to come online. We believe the MESA sits in a really uh, amazing place to ensure that impact communities have the spaces to share content, have uh, vulnerable open conversations. And so I'm so glad to hear you both are really moving in a digital direction in addition to your offline offerings. And I'd love to pose the next question to Peter. So along the lines of of digital, you've heard me say a couple of times today that we believe technology can really play an important part in helping connect high net worth individuals like yourselves around the world with different causes, new information and diverse perspectives that they wouldn't otherwise have access to in their everyday lives. But there is still the question of building that trust online and belonging in online spaces. So Peter, both online and offline, uh, in your work around play, how do you encourage intentional trust-based relationships? And are there any ways that you do this offline that can potentially be brought online for those who are looking to bring their current offline communities into a digital space?
4: Yeah. It's an amazing question because it's kind of like the holy grail of what I'm trying to do, right? It's like, how do you how do you bridge all of the things that Michelle and Christina just said around, uh, there's probably a list of, I don't know, 25 things that I can kind of list off and, and check and say like, you know, you both have covered it beautifully. The willingness to be vulnerable, having a safe space to fail, prioritizing one-to-one interactions and really thinking about how can you make those genuine relationships by talking face to face to somebody, showing up. I think if nothing else I've learned a ton about you know, right after George Floyd happened last year, I reached out to a lot of people in the community to ask, you know, what are things that I can do to to help guide these conversations and people just said show up. And I was like, what's well, it feels simple enough, but it's really important. You make a commitment, you stand by the commitment, you show up, people begin to trust you. It's very hard to build that trust in a community when you're new, but it's very easy to break it. And so it's, I think with, with technology, it's a funny question to ask me because I, if you were to ask me this about a year ago, I'd have been like, I don't know technology. I'm not a technologist. I work on analog kind of offline games to to try to drive social impact and build awareness around social causes. But I think in the last year, taking some of the things that I've learned from playing with people online, recognizing that all of the same principles that we're just kind of outlining, they, they apply to an online game space, right? If you focus on what people want to get out of a conversation or an experience, think about their strengths, not by what they're good at, but what gives them energy. You know, I don't know how many follow kind of the strengths-based approach of, of kind of psychology, but like, I'm a big fan of you bring energy into a space because you really enjoy doing what you're doing. And that has ripple effects in a group. It helps people recognize and align around clear values. A lot of the work in the last year kind of pushing back to some of the other questions that you've been asking, I started a giving circle for the next gen community here in D.C., and we started at the beginning of last year, had one meeting on March 1st, and then lockdown happened, and so we had to very quickly figure out how to connect our 75-plus members to each other and figure out how are we going to align around an issue area when only 20 or 30 of us have actually seen each other in person ever. And so using some of these methodologies of like, all right, we're going to prioritize getting to know each other on a one to one basis. We're going to show up for things. We're going to try to create some kind of structure so that people can plan and feel like this is a predictable space. I think a lot of that is something that tech can do really well as long as it's designed intentionally. Right. If it can. I have a really good friend here in the city that talks about tech like don't use it as a crutch use it as something that enhances how to be a better human. It was a paraphrase, but something along those lines, right? And I feel like that's, that's what's converted me into really thinking about how technology can help as someone who's working on accessible ways to, to build philanthropic knowledge or expertise. What can you explore, play with? I mean, this is like a sandbox, right? If you can give people tools to play with and they have that growth mindset, like Michelle said, there's a lot that people can can discover for themselves. And I think there's nothing more powerful than that, right? Because you can build your own reason for why you want to engage. Storytelling is really important to a lot of my work. And I think what I want to do, and I I know some of the panels like he's going to ask a question to the audience, and I don't know what he's going to ask. But what I want people to do, I want to this is an experiment, a live experiment that won't be very helpful for people listening to the podcast. But for everyone who's, who's sitting and has the, the chat box open, I want you to, to think about your favorite memory, a favorite memory that comes to mind. There's one rule, it can't be by yourself, right? You have to build a, it has to be relationship building. So not by yourself, one of your favorite memories, I want you to type in the chat two things. One, what is the action of that memory? So like, if you went fishing, type fishing. And how many people were you with? And if you type those two things in the chat, I'm really curious to get kind of what this composition looks like. And I won't ruin the, the final outcome. But what I think a lot of what we're talking about in building these communities is that not a lot of these things are, are digital. They're probably a lot of physical things, right? You know, we're playing with people. I'll start reading some things off just for people on podcast. You know, swimming, rolling down a hill, eating cheese hiking, singing, fishing, truly fishing. Thank you, you're welcome for the the prompt. You know, having lunch, yes, dancing, going to a wedding. These are all physical things. Thinking about how these experiences, what, what made them magical, right? It used all of our senses. We lose a lot of those senses in technology if it's not intentionally planned. And so when you think about designing an event or designing some kind of exercise, Think about what senses are missing from that experience so that people can engage in the way that they know best, right? That's how you're going to get people's strengths to the table. And so for me, I feel like in building up trust in communities, it's that combination of showing up, being intentional about why you're doing things. And then hopefully as conversations grow, you know, laugh a little bit, play together and there's a quote that I'll finish with and I don't know if the attribution is right because it's from Plato and I don't know how accurate these things are, but he says something like you can learn more in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. And I think that is really what strikes me as something that we can all enjoy. There there's just so much to learn from how people take an unstructured moment and turn it into something together. So However, that resonates with you in your philanthropic approach, you know, make sure that you're having fun at the same time. There's a lot of cheese in the chat.
0: That resonates with me personally. So I, I, I understand that. Peter, that is so interesting. And it really makes me think of, of moments. So we support alongside the Mesa. We support a lot of communities in developing their offline or online community strategies as they build up to being ready to have a a platform that really supports them in this work. And something we say a lot of times is why don't you build in a trust pledge right at the start of, of the community engagement where everyone signs off, everyone gives their permission to say, listen, I am creating a trustworthy community in which I will not share things outside of this community. I won't be asking this community for their money. Things that so many individual philanthropists or donors feel like, they're constantly being asked for. And in many cases, they're feeling used. And so enabling those communities to have that trustworthy environment, setting community guidelines and norms that everyone sticks to. And if you don't stick to it, there will be some, some moderation of sorts. So it's really, really interesting to hear how you can bring those offline uh, while they may look different, and I think that goes back to our research around offline complementing online and, and vice versa, how you can adapt and, and how we're all going to have to adapt as time goes on and we use technology in new ways. Well, that is the the portion of our structured questions. We have a few questions in the Q&A and we have about 13 minutes left. So we invite anyone else to drop your questions into the chat or the Q and a better yet. And we'll start answering those now. All right. I am going to Peter. I have a question that I think will be really great for you to answer. So the, the question asker mentions, I'm curious to know how you make your giving decisions how much, to whom, what do you do in terms of research? Is there anything nonprofits can do to help you make the right decisions? So I'd love to start with you, but uh, of course, this is relevant for all three of you. So um, Michelle or Christina, feel free to chime in.
4: Yeah, it's a fantastic, fantastic question. I will answer it from a couple different angles, starting with the Family Foundation. So the Kettering Family Foundation is is a six generation family comes from an innovation background. So as someone who has had never met the founder, never met this wonderful inventor who has a bunch of patents, how can we be innovative in our giving has been a question sort of in the back of my mind for since I can remember. And so for us, we give to a whole list of topics because our main goal as a big foundation with a lot of members is to appeal to the interests of everybody, right? Which naturally means we spread ourselves very thin and we don't make a very deep impact in any of these spaces, which can be a kind of a grinding stone for us because some people really want to get deeper into their communities. And so figuring out as a a philanthropic entity, what is our purpose? Our purpose internally is to kind of steward a bunch of philanthropists in their own community. So for us right now, it's just getting them interested in building their muscles to to giving, right? And so that might feel very random because the applications, open applications that we get, are across every category, and you know, it's it's sort of like whoever applies, it's a it feels like a little bit of a roulette process on who gets the funding, right? There might be a couple relationships that we've built over the years in the geographic areas that our family members are centered around. But for us, it's trying to think about, is that the way that we want to go forward? And for me, I've used some of my other pieces. So next, the giving circle that I started talking to other philanthropists in the DC area, really building a community in DC, that's where I want to try to go more vertical, right? And think about How can I make a deeper impact? What are some other kinds of models that I can test out here to bring back to the family and say, hey, are we sure we still want to be doing this? Because this has been really successful here. And so, again, trying to think how can we bring innovation back into our family kind of legacy, and I think that would be an amazing piece to bring forward, right? So that's what I work on a lot of the time. I joined a board here in in D.C. called the Unfunded List, and it is essentially a nonprofit that gives candid feedback to nonprofit applicants. And to me, I could not think of a better thing to be able to offer rejected applicants to an application process because there is so much time spent in these applications. And it's it's usually not talked about the kind of monetary incentive of, of applying and, and then the penalty of not getting grant. And so thinking about unfunded list as another kind of value that you can offer your applicants that really limits the risk of applying is something that I'm really passionate about finding just different ways to do that. And so we're trying to build partnerships to make sure that if you're going to apply, we're not kind of a net negative to the philanthropic space, right? There's a lot of, there are a lot of foundations out there that aren't thinking about their impact to the application process. And I think it's a conversation that's starting to emerge. And I'm really excited because I think there's some really great, great players out there that are helping carry that conversation. So if anybody's interested, I'm always happy to to jump in and, and think about creative ways to to give more than just the money.
0: Thanks so much, Peter. Yeah, Michelle, do you want to jump in? I'll just
3: quickly jump in. I mean, Peter, that's really exciting because it's a it's quite a a different way of thinking about things. And I guess my way is a little bit more conventional, but I'll just share it for anyone who's interested. Like, unlike really big organizations like the Gates Foundation, (laughs) we have limited funds, which curtails what we can do. But at the same time, it gives us opportunities to take risks that the big INGOs might not be able to do. So, you know, I have things like a theory of change to analyze how potential grants might fit into our framework because we can't fund everything. But I also like to invest in things that a lot of other organizations don't fund, which is essentially research, M&E, leadership, capacity building, and advocacy. And I think that's a theme like, you know, before people used to fund around a specific area. Now people want to look at how they're funding and how they're helping Organizations. I also tend to play the long game where I can to see if early stage funding will have positive outcomes eight, nine years down the road. So, for me, building trusted relationships with our partners is very important to us. And having part of that trust is transparency. I tell my grantees, you know, when you're reporting, I don't just want to hear the good stuff, I want to hear the bad stuff as well, because we're here to work through these issues together and you know it's that unequal power structure sometimes that is a little bit difficult to navigate because as a funder grantees are always trying to get you to give you what you want to hear and that's not necessarily a good learning process so yeah maybe our our approach is a little bit oh I also have a board that I report to so they keep me on an even keel we <laughs> yeah. Christina, would you like to jump in?
5: Yeah, I can um, add a, a, l- a quick little thing um, and also I, like maybe address a little bit of another question that was just asked, where for us in this learning journey over the last three years on how to fund a lot, it was a lot of the things that has already been mentioned. In particular, we we created a, an advisory board that's like set up and, and comprised of people who are like deeply embedded in, in movements because of the things i learned pretty early on in, in philanthropy is that a lot of the decision making is made by people who don't have lived experience on the issues and are often people with privilege and we wanted to make sure that we were being led by and informed and that we're moving some decision making power and decisions over where resources will go to people who are on the ground and organizing in social movements and i think for us it's been a really important piece to understand. That we may not be best placed to be know to know uh, as like our family members are not best placed to know where funding might be needed the most and also what the solutions look like. So often we have like a pretty um, traditional approach of, of of what solutions look like, a very top down approach. And the funding bod- the funding world has has been leading and kind of deciding what what change should look like when we should try to find ways to listen to underfunded and and grassroots communities and community organizations that are actually creating the solutions, but are just deeply underfunded. And so one of the criteria that's crucial for us in all of our funding is that the members from the communities of the organization that we're funding, those members are the ones leading the organization and really trying to make sure that we're supporting organizations that are committed to grassroots leadership in in our strategy and how we fund.
0: Great. And recognizing that we have four minutes to go, I'm wondering if all three of you could do a quick, really quick one minute on... Let's see. We've got a couple of good questions. By the way, we have a bunch of questions in here. Anything we haven't had a chance to get to, we will follow up with individuals who shared those questions. If you did share them anonymously, please just let us know if you'd like an answer after this conversation. Feel free to email me or Emma. I think everyone has Emma's email address. So please feel free to follow up with us. Just one line. What do you find the hardest part about giving and how do you work to overcome it?
4: saying no. I think that transcends beyond just giving, but I think saying no is is really difficult and so really think about the value of time and everyone involved.
3: Great. That's a great point, Peter. For me it's not knowing whether your funding will actually result in a measurable impact down the road. It's just, you know, by funding research and advocacy initiatives, it's incredibly difficult to determine attribution. Did my funding actually contribute to policy change? If so, how much? So that sort of unknown is difficult for me.
0: Thank you, Michelle.
5: My family is part of our foundation. So the hardest part is working with my family, which I love, and I hope they don't hear this, but no, it's really fun and great to work with them, but it's also really, really hard to work with family and to try to organize family, to move family, to give up power and give up resources. And that's a journey that be gentle with and and loving, <laughs> compassionate with.
4: Yeah, you can't fire a family member.
6: <laughs> and I come from this, a totally different angle, you know, working for a family foundation, but all of those answers resonate with me too, just in our day-to-day as program officers too, especially saying no. <laughs> so true. That was, that was wonderful, that honesty
0: and candor. Thank you all. Yes, and Emily, thanks so much from your perspective from the gate side of things as well. So one minute left. I first of all really want to thank the panelists who've joined us today at all hours. Your perspectives and the authentic way you've shared your experiences is so valuable to whether whether you're speaking with nonprofits as donors or wealth advisors as clients or just as philanthropists within family foundations, I think a lot of what you said resonates with different attendees on this call. And then I also just want to mention the MESA learning report, which just launched and a lot of what was said with our panelists. You'll see throughout the learnings and the insights and then we also have had the benefit of having Generation Pledge and Standard Chartered Private Bank, who were two of our pilots. They shared their experiences in building impact communities. Finally, I just welcome anyone on this call who has an existing offline impact community or a digital impact community and wants to determine a better way to make it function or create more intentional community to definitely reach out. I am happy to chat with anyone and happy to explore what the right solution is for you and how maybe the MESA would be something that you'd be interested in, but also how we could just make sure your community is as robust and successful as possible. So thanks again, everyone who's joined us on the call. This has been recorded and we'll be sharing it out. And I hope everyone has a good day.
2: That's all we've got for today. A big thanks to Lauren for organizing and hosting this event, and again to our partners at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and our panelists. Of course, another thank you to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, and our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget the code What Donors Want, all one word, will get you a twenty-five percent discount at checkout on an Alliance subscription. We will be back shortly with a recap episode for season three and of course, season four coming to your headphones soon. And in the meantime, you know where to find us. We're at Twitter at IG underscore advisors, our website, impactandgrowth.com. And of course, you can email us to set up a virtual coffee or perhaps, dare I say, an in-person coffee if you're in the UK. Although who knows by the time this episode comes out, how the regulations will change, but definitely the intent is there and we'd love to see you online whenever we can. So thanks again for listening. Thanks to all the people who came to the event and we'll see you soon.